0: The funny thing about ROI story is everybody wants their own version of it, right? What your IT team cares about is not what your devs care about. What your devs care about is not what your business leadership team cares about. What your business, you know, cares about is not your end users, right? They all have different needs.
1: Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Modern Business Operations. I'm your host, Seth Colliner. And today I am here with Phil Blaken, who is the co founder and CEO of No Code Ops. Philip, why don't you share a bit about your background and your current role?
0: Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. This is super exciting. So, yeah, I am, like you said, the founder of No Code Ops. We are both a community for operations professionals that use no code tools. And we also have uh, developed a platform called Operator that's currently in beta to help folks when they scale no code automations on systems like Zapier and Airtable and more soon to come, like me. So yeah, and in this role, I was a no-code operator for a long time, even before I knew it, and then got really inspired to start this company along that journey, which I'll talk about shortly. But yeah, that's me.
1: Excellent. So our format today is a little different than usual. So you're gonna walk us through a a presentation you've recently come up with and done a few times. It's the process of starting and then scaling no-code ops. So starting basically from scratch and and moving through to the paradox of success to scaling, to demonstrating ROI, you know, and just in when we were talking in, initially about topics and what to talk about for this episode, it just immediately was like, why don't you just do that? Because I think so many people really just, they, they want to get that whole picture. And so, you know, I was like, why not? Let's do the whole thing, soup to nuts. Cool.
0: So call this going from scrappy to scaled in no-code operations. And to kind of give some context for this, this is like my journey into, you know, no-code operations. And I actually started my professional career as an actor. So I was in everything from Law and & Order and Gossip Girl to Films and Cans and Tribeca Film Festival. And when I was an actor, I was a super mediocre waiter. So I just found a big loving joy in doing grill marketing and promotion. So I eventually started my own company on that front called Your NYC uh, Concierge. And we worked, uh, we did a lot of grill marketing and promotions for B2C tech companies, in New York at the time. And one of those companies was Get, an Israeli-based Uber competitor. So they offered to hire us. And that's where I learned how to just build a lot of things without any kind of help from the dev team, because they'd wanted me to digitally transform the way they onboarded rideshare drivers in the field. It was all done with pen and paper and in the office. And so they wanted me to you know figure out how do we do this out in the airport parking lots uh, So drivers don't have to come to us and do it all digitally, and so I used a stack of tools for that. I used a Pronto forms, Zapier, and Google Sheets, and a little bit of Formstack to make all of that work. And, and it helped us scale to you know over twenty five thousand drivers in like under a year and a half. So really awesome. And then I got headhunted at Compass, the real estate technology company, to do something very similar for their real estate agents. Compass was growing really fast at the time on the East Coast, and they wanted to go national. But before they did that, they wanted to standardize some of their onboarding practices. That were happening regionally into a more standardized but flexible system. And so that is what I uh, built with no code there. And I used a combination of Zapier, Google Sheets, and a onboarding tool called EnBorder, which is like a no code onboarding workflow tool. And then after a bunch of time there, I became like a solution architect for all of national operations, kind of like an internal no code consultant. And when I found out that no code was a term, I got really jazzed because I was like, oh my gosh, there's people who think about this. This is awesome. And then I was kind of let down because most of the people in the space are talking about being a maker or an entrepreneur or being a founder, like building something with no code, not necessarily like working in ops as like sales ops, people ops, marketing ops internally, like the entrepreneurs at these large to mid-sized companies doing this stuff. And so I started a newsletter called No Code Ops, which is now for 10,000 subscribers. We turned that into a vetted community of over a thousand folks in our you know Discord community that we have free events for twice a week. And that eventually turned into wanting to build Operator. And so this is us, you know, just like by the numbers, right? So, you know, tons of subscribers and community members, you know, we've even recently just started like getting freelance gigs for a lot of the folks in our community as well. So we've just in the past few months, just done over $75,000 in gigs for, for folks in the community, which is really exciting. And then we also did two years, over two years of talking to over 300 people about their journey like mine in terms of what it was like to come into and scale ops and kind of the need for operator. And just as a quick preview here of what operator is, we hook into Zapier and Airtable to show you a view like this, which is all of your automations in one place. We have Zapier now. We have Airtable fields covered, but Airtable automations and make coming soon. And the idea is that you can see all of your automations in one place. And this very much replicates like the spreadsheet that we kept seeing in the field when people were scaling and documenting their no-code builds. They would build this huge spreadsheet of all their automations, what they were doing, what they were connected to, who owned them, when was last change made. So with operator, we hook into your systems and automate 95% of that. So you don't have to do all the manual work of maintaining, updating documentation in order to scale. So we're really jazzed about what we do with operator. I don't know if Seth, this relates, you know, to your journey at all. If you've heard this like from other operators, but the rise of the ops hero typically always follows like the same story, which is a non-technical person at a company gets asked to do something like, you know, automating lead routing, right? They get no support from the technical team. There's no off-the-shelf software does exactly what they need. So they find tools like Zapier and like they become the automation hero for that process. I don't know if you've heard that story before. And so here's the paradox of this that you mentioned before, right? The paradox is, so you've crushed it, right? You've nailed it. Like you saved the day. Awesome. Lead routing is flawless. Awesome. But now word starts to spread that, hold on, now another department wants in, say the marketing team in you know, you know, their new ideas. And then, you know, your sales leadership team now has questions and like quick requests. And now they also want you to train others to be able to do this. And like, all of a sudden this like success that you had in automating this one thing turns into just like pure chaos. And, and even if you're able to manage that well and handle all of those requests and be that kind of one person machine to do all of these things, the annoying part about that is what got you excited about this stuff was building, not maintaining stuff. And so you quickly turn into a maintenance person over a building person, which is not as fun as, you know, it's not the reason you got into this stuff.
1: Right, right. It's it's a little, it's a two, kind of two different skill sets and two different personality type. We you know what's kind of funny about that though, for, you know, for some people that I talk to, it's almost the opposite where they get hooked on the idea and then they can't <laughs> get anyone in the organization to bite on it. So they're like, you know, and it's not that they don't understand the value or, or what it does or cool it is but they have to actually sell it because someone has to pay for it. And that's their big roadblock. But anyway. Oh
0: yeah. And I'll definitely talk about ROI stuff in terms of like how to get past those robots. Because oftentimes that automation champ is like the believer and sometimes they need to do things to get that buy-in. So we'll definitely jam on that, like the ROI front, because different folks in the business have different concerns when it comes to this stuff that definitely need addressing. And you just said it, right? Like those are two very different skills, like building and maintaining. And so I like to say to ops folks who like, you know, fallen into this. of I'm the automation here. Now I'm like the ops person doing all this stuff. What got you here won't get you there. What got you to like becoming that critical person at the company to do these things and be super scrappy aren't going to be the same set of skills that get you to scale this across the org and, you know, retain it as super critical. And And the reason that us ops folks don't want to ever hand this stuff over to devs is because then like, we lose control, we lose speed, and we lose customization, and we don't want those things, and so it's really important to learn how to also excel once this stuff starts to scale so that we can retain control over these automations and systems. so yeah, let's jam on like what got you here, right? Like what are the skills like let's identify those like what are the skills that got you from you know the kind of person like CX or sales management or whatever that now you're this operation superhero, right? So you built first and you asked later you probably didn't ask for permission to even start using something like, you know, Zapier or Meg or Aaron you start doing it uh, and, you know, swipe the credit card or did a freemium or whatever. So you're really experimental. All the documentation lives in your head. You're not writing down anything. You're just, you know, you're building at the speed of thought. You're ignoring errors until they impact other people thinking like, you know, unless it really impacts somebody, I'll just kind of get back to this thing. Like, and then there's no need in the beginning, typically to prove ROI, unless there's that use case where like, you really need to prove out ROI uh, before I even get your hands on the tool. But typically, you know, there's no need to like prove out investment for the stuff because you're being asked to do something that prompted this in the beginning. So yeah, there's little to no investment. And then now all that stuff has to s- switch, right? All of those things have to be turned on their heads. So like, You've got to ask questions first and build later. You know, one thing from the product world that's amazing is like everyone knows in product, right? Like when it comes to external customers, you don't just build solutions and show them to people. It's codified doctrine that you start with problems. You get to know the users. You ask them about like how they're currently doing and solving for things. But on the internal side, we like just completely throw that thinking out the window. Nope. I don't know if you've ever experienced this Seth, like from your end of either being on the receiving end of one of these top-down builds or like being the builder of them being like, well, I just built it. So people should want to use it. We don't, you know, or I'm excited about this automation thing. So we just did it. Instead of just like talking to folks about it, stakeholders and so on. Have you ever had that experience?
1: Well, the thing I I see just sort of everywhere all the time, particularly as AI has become a more and more of a thing, especially this year at Generative AI, is that people get caught up in the tool. It's, it's sort of the starting with the solution and then trying to find a problem, but they get caught up in the tool. It feels like magic. It's so cool. And they're like, wow, I could do a million things with this. And it's like, yeah, nobody cares that you can do a million things. You know, no one has time for that. Like it, those of us who are grown ups who have jobs, who, you know, have businesses to run or departments to manage or whatever. I don't have time for your cool tool. I have problems. What can you do? And yeah, so starting with a problem, you know, especially with a tool that can do any, you know, can do anything, quote unquote, anything, it's, well, but what do you actually need to do? And yeah, starting with that. And then suddenly you've got a wonderful solution, but yeah, if you don't understand what you're trying to solve for, you really can't get anywhere.
0: Oh, hundred percent. And the, you're so right. And the tool can inspire new things, right? But it shouldn't be like the, the core of it, right? You know, if you got a box of furniture to build from Ikea, right? And you know, all of a sudden you have a power drill now, right? The power drill versus the manual screwdriver, right? It's not going to build the thing for you. You still have got to build it, right? It's just, it's going to go faster. And so like these tools can increase the speed on these builds, but just because we increase the speed doesn't mean we remove the thinking behind them. And, you know, some of the core product principles that live when we're there, when we're talking to external users. So yeah, I love starting with problems and not solutions, digging into problems learning what people are actually experiencing, shadowing the folks that you want to automate their work for before you start automating it. You know, I always say the end product that you build shouldn't be a surprise. The later you get in this stuff, everybody should have been involved early and often. IT, the business stakeholders, the end users, the cross-departmental buyers, they should all, by the end of this project that you're building or automation or, you know, no-code system that you're building, they should be like, oh yeah, we knew this was coming and this is awesome. We feel like really informed. Not like, what is this thing that we have to do now? (laughs) It's like big red flag. And then I also like say like for the automation side, creating the automation development lifecycle is really powerful. So a lot of times these automations, whether, you know, they're in Zapier or Make or Webhooks or whatever, you know, they're so easy to build that like people just forget that they exist. And so like tagging them into whether using a tool like operator or a spreadsheet or something being like, Hey, this is like in testing mode, or this is owned by this person. And you know, so there's like the testing mode of an automation, there's the idea stage of an automation, there's the, this is live, this is under review, this is in maintenance, this is deprecated. Having those stage gates for automation, I think is really powerful and drives conversation between teams, like saying, there's a stage gate for something to go live. These two people have to agree on it. It's kind of like the no-coder version of a pull request, right? So I think those kind of learnings from the dev world become really powerful. I also like to tell folks like it's so important to foster a culture of documentation. And I always say on the to-do side here, start with documentation you wish you had. I feel like sometimes with documentation, it's just like this like blank page syndrome of like, oh, I'm staring at this thing and like where do I even start? And it's uh, it's just kind of annoying. It's just like, write down two or three things you wish you knew about any automation that you've gone back and debugged in the past, right? And just like, fill in the blanks, right? What's one bullet behind why I created this or why I made an update to this? Who are the stakeholders for this thing? Very straightforward stuff. Like it doesn't need to be radically complex. Just start with what you wish you had. Because guess what? When you onboard other people into this one day or other departments have to work with it, they're going to want to know those same things and your trust with them is only going to go higher. And you're going to be able to do more complex things and work with more data. If you show people that you know what you're doing here.
1: And especially, you know, just the the, the little line you have here, if people can't find it, it's not real. That's like very much at the heart of what we do at Tonkin. The idea that even if you have really well-defined processes or whatever, yeah, if people don't know about them or where to find them or don't even know the first step, then yeah, they're just not going to use them. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin's process experience platform seamlessly wraps around existing policies and systems, allowing internal service teams to do more with what they already have. Build process experiences that are personalized for each requester and use AI to automate the intake, triage, and resolution of every request. Maximize adoption, compliance, and efficiency with no change management and no code. It's <laughs> so, you know, 110%, like in Tonkin, right? If someone's like just getting these emails
0: with things to do, right? Because Tonkin like does a lot of orchestration stuff. So something like an end user can just live in their inbox, right? They don't have to actually go to the system. But if they don't know the overall process they're a part of and what it means and why, and they're not able to find that documentation around that, like they're not going to be able to make good suggestions for updating it, or they might not even adhere to it. People want to know the why behind things. And so I always like to focus on consistency over extensiveness. Whatever you can keep doing, that's good enough documentation. Just start somewhere. You know, the documentation types that I like to think of are like, so what is the architecture like? How is this thing built? Considerations for reshaping it, rebuilding it, changing things. What is the user journey and like how to use this as an end user? And so user journey would be like, here's all the emails that come out of this thing or all the, you know, the Slack messages to how they look when they come out of this thing. Whereas the how to use this is like, I'm a CX person that has to use this Tonkin orchestration workflow for managing a subset of tickets. How do I actually use this? What are my decisions when I? Flip certain statuses in Zendesk, like what actually happens in Tomke, you know, and how do I follow that process? And then just like covering the how and the why. Just not only how this works, but like why we built this, why we made this change, why we involve these groups of folks in it. Oh, that's like really important. Now, I always also like to say brace for error The more you build, the more it's going to break. Software, maybe one day with AI, but software's not fixing itself yet, right? And so the more you build, the more surface area there are going to be things for go wrong. The more people you involve, more departments that, you know, go on. I don't know if you've, you know, seen this like internally talking with users, but like someone will just go in and change a field somewhere and not understand the impacts that just had across the entire system. And so implementing monitoring tools and workflows like whether that's like weekly audits of just like logs right like one thing we do in operator on that friends we actually give you a log of every single change that's happening in zapier like i look through that once a week right it's just who's making what types of changes when role-based access control isn't cutting it or not involved in the tool because no code is still early in maturity there's really cool things that i've seen people do in our user interviews for operator we're like they go to fields like, let's say Tonkin, Right, you you start a process on something in Airtable where when somebody flips Airtable status from pending to approved, Tonkin kicks off a whole orchestration kind of automation process, right? Well, you really don't want someone messing with that field, right? Because if you change the wording in that or you change that field type, it would break things in, in your system and it wouldn't hear it, right? It wouldn't pull it correctly. And so... What we've seen folks do in Airtable, which is really creative, is put like a little lock icon on that field name to know, don't touch this. And in the description, like who to reach out to, what it's connected to. Really cool.
1: Simple and straightforward and common sense.
0: It just works, right? And really helps. Because like when you bury this stuff in documentation, like I said earlier, if people can't see it, it doesn't exist. So how do you make it just totally visible? Well, anytime I edit a field, I'm going to go into the field. So I'm going to see the title of it. Every automation should have a SPOA. Does Tonkin have this, by the way, where it's like, different automations can be owned by different folks. So, you know, if someone's leaving, like what automations now need a new owner and are potentially getting
1: orphaned. It's all just about access. Who has access to what?
0: Yep. So whether it's like notes or tagging or an external documentation, making sure that who owns what workflows are just really important. And then linking error resolutions to relevant documentation. If you solve an error, if you debug something, right? Like make sure to make that how you solve that be findable to future folks that are looking at that field, right? (laughs) Like that's really, or that process that's, you know, extremely helpful and can save a ton of work in the future. And then this is like where I talk about less on the, I've got to sell this initially, but more so I've got to keep my budget for this tool that is now running our entire operations team. So I call it ABCD, which is always be communicating dividends. Dividend just being the best word that began with D that summarized. uh, Understood. (laughs) Yeah, investment, right? So showing your work with roadmaps and and having feedback loops, right? Like your work is in, like the the best automation work is invisible, right? It just works in the background. And so unless, of course, it breaks, then it becomes very visible, right? And so how do you show people the work that's constantly going into this, right? Just like a dev would show their product roadmap and, you know, the thoughts behind things and gain alignment around prioritization. You know, the devs are building stuff because you can see, you know, they're showing you in those sprint sessions and those planning sessions, like what they're actually planning to work on. Show that work to people. Don't just do the work. You have to kind of market it a bit, even while you're doing it. Highlight specific success stories. You know, if you've got a CX person on your team that's saving four hours a week, write a little blurb about that and get that sent around. Highlight that. Like th- those go a long way. I'll still never forget, like with Nboard or the tool we use at Compass for onboarding, You know, we highlighted a very similar time trial like that, and our CEO called it like one of the best tech investments of that year was, you know, and it was purely because like he had seen that success story. So that stuff goes a long way. And then regularly showcasing ROI, whether it's, you know, to management, to leadership, right? And there's a bunch of ways to do that. I stole all of these, by the way, from my buddy, Mike Cardona, with his permission, of course, uh, as a friendly steal. He has an entire worksheet, like a worksheet on Notion called uh, automated workflow KPIs, and I put the link here, it's tinyurl.com slash hidden levers AI. But some of the things that he talks about when you're demonstrating ROI, it's not a sense, like sometimes it's not just so directly tied to revenue, which would be nice for everything, but it's not always that cut and dry. And so he listed things out like time-saving, cost reduction, error reduction, increased output, improved data quality, higher customer satisfaction... Those are all like really big things that are actually pretty measurable if you try. You know, uh, a good thing around time savings is if you're, you know, reducing a manual process, track how long it takes on average to do that process, right? And then to tie costs to that, how much of that person's, you know, salary is spent on that stuff where now it isn't, right? They can do higher value activities. There's creative ways to think about automations. Yeah, have you seen that on like your end, like when working with
1: customers? Well, I mean, it's, it's always a challenge, right? Is demonstrating the ROI. And, you know, all of those things you just listed, yeah, you know, they indirectly, indirectly relate to revenue. One of the challenges that I think a lot of folks have is they'll say like, hey, it saved us a lot of time. And depending on the level that you're at, the answer is, I don't care. Burn your time, right? It doesn't matter to <laughs> cool. me. Yeah. It's getting done one way or another and I'm not paying more or less for it. I don't care if it saves you 20% of your time. So sometimes that can be tricky. So you have to sometimes get more creative about selling it, you know, kind of up the ladder a little bit. But, you know, so I think that just means you need to be often more creative about how you position it. I'll give
0: you another creative thing that I've done in the past on that front. Okay, so we have an onboarding team, right? That was spending per person five hours a week, right? On the onboarding team, like just doing all these manual tasks. We reduce those tasks, right? And to like, you know, all being automated. So in that extra five hours a week, they were doing more high-touch, high-value things throughout the onboarding that then it had an overall increase on the onboarding, you know, NPS score, right? And you can see that, you know, here, right? Like it was a lift in points, right? So like you can get creative like that and you show that what is the outcome of the higher value activity that is now being done because the manual things no longer have to be done by those folks. Like, that's another way of measuring it.
1: Right, yeah, totally. And, you know, one of the, one of the values that Tonkin has, and that I've seen other folks have, as I've talked to people on this podcast, especially, you know, it's really about wanting to maximize your value to your organization, because we are not automatons, right? Like, we are all unique, creative, intelligent individuals. You know, and if you have trained as an attorney, or if you have you know, learned finance and logistics to, to be in procurement or whatever the case may be. It's like, you want to use your expertise. And, you know, one argument is, or uh, argument four, right, is saying, you're paying me to do crap work. I'm really good. You know that I'm really good. I know what the business's goals are. Here are all the things that I could be doing, like right, the high value work that I'm not doing, because I'm over here fielding emails or chasing people down for signatures, or, yeah, or copy, whatever the case may be. You know, it's almost like a negative space way of arguing for the value, but that's another way that, yeah, totally, yeah.
0: But it works. And especially tying that increased output or productivity to like current company KPIs, huge. But yes, speaking of, we have a slide about KPIs. Speaking back of which, yeah, come back to it. So this is just like an example I gave of, if you took like Mike's like worksheet, you know, gave a presentation on it. I gave an example here of just like, you know, if you are a show leadership, you know, something like Hey, the automation name here on this KPI tracker is duplicate data, you know, entry remover, you know, here's a description of it. Here's the goals for it. You know, streamline data management, reduce manual data entry, ensure data consistency. So then, you know, having a benchmark of like where these are currently at. So it currently takes us 15 hours of manual entry weekly. There's 20% data discrepancies. We have 10% negative feedback that, you know, coming from customers because we're emailing them like on the wrong birthday or getting saying hi F name, you know, in an email. So current metrics versus targets, you show you how you increase those, you know, and how on target they are. And then, you know, time frame of like how you tracked it, right? So this is a really clean, beautiful example of just like how to express value. Now, the funny thing about ROI story is everybody wants their own version of it, right? What your IT team cares about is not what your devs care about. What your devs care about is not what your business leadership team cares about. What your business, you know, cares about is not your end users, right? They all have different needs, right? The end users are going to want, you know, user acceptance testing and how to use this documentation and manuals. Your business leadership's going to want, how does this relate to KPIs? Is it actually like moving the needle on anything? You know, your devs are going to want to go, well, how, if we need to integrate with this, like how hard is it going to be and how reliable are you and your system going to be to integrate with our custom data or data sources? Your IT team's going to worry about security of all of this stuff and you know, how compliant it is and is there PII in there or not? And so. This is like an example of like a zap workflow. We actually use this live today for our lead intake process at no code ops. So when a web, you know, flow form submission comes in, we have a filter to make sure it's not spam. We use a text formatter to lowercase the email. So they're all in the same format. You know, we find the record if it already exists in our Airtable CRM. And if it does, you know, we add this new form submission to that contact and link it. If doesn't, we create both the contact record and the form record and link those. And then we have like some rules for just, you know, add an internal newsletter or not, or if they're an ICP or not. And so, you know, an operator will look at this, have specific questions, but all of your, your stakeholders have very different questions when they look at this flow. I team's going to go, who's this? off is sending emails via Gmail? Like, we need to know that. Your devs are going to go, okay, so which version of Webflow form is connected it's here? You're like, we have several that we control. The business leadership's gonna say, whoa, whoa, how many leads are we getting that are qualified versus unqualified? I actually want to see that percentage breakdown that's being split on those paths. And end users on your ops team, you know, might say, wait, are qualified leads not getting on our newsletter list? Cause those are separate paths where they are just the way that paths work in Zapier, you, you know, it checks each one. It doesn't
1: just go one or the other. And
0: so, you know, everyone's got different questions. So it's like being prepared with just like how to talk to all of those folks, really important.
1: Yeah. I just had a conversation on this podcast the other day. It speaks to that. It was more from a leadership perspective, but it has to do with empathy and curiosity, right? It's like literally going to those people in those departments and saying, what are the problems you're experiencing? What do you need? Like I have this thing I'm cooking up. Does this help you? In what way might it help you? What are you dealing with? And actually just just getting answers from people. And then, you know, then you can go and sort of solve their problem, meet their need. And, And, you know, that's a great way to get other people on board yeah, you know, the thing that you're trying to do.
0: Oh yeah. You know, I feel like the kind of double-edged sword of no-code solutions and like how fast and easy they are to adopt, build, scale. Is, it's this double-edged sword that like it can go really fast but also can hurt, right? Because it's so tempting to just get in there and build and let your imagination run wild and just do things that we forget that there's like an art and a science behind like building the right things for the right people in the right context. You don't just get that skill because now you can build the things you always wanted to build. A lot of us operations folks who are non-technical just always have thought to ourselves, man, if you just gave me the thing, like I would never get on a roadmap again. I'd be able to do it. And then you get the thing, you're like, oh, wow, thinking through some of this stuff is actually pretty hard. You know, UI and UX are like not super easy. And like what people want, like uh, the reality is people often don't know what they want right? And that discovery process is really hard and you still have to get good at that. No code doesn't make that. It just makes your reps faster. It doesn't solve those fundamental questions. So that is, yeah, a hundred percent. You still have to get, you know, get good at those things. And so this is just like a bonus of quick wins. I always just like leaving folks with like super action. Like here's like five super practical ways to start kind of jamming on this stuff and bringing it into your day-to-day work. So quick wins. When it comes to using tools like Tonkin and Zapier and Make, whether they're automations or workflows or orchestrations, and it's a company-wide thing, not just like a personal productivity thing. Use service auths, not personal auths. (laughs) I'm going to say it. Use service auths, not personal auths. The amount of times I've seen a critical workflow break because someone left a company and their name at company.com got deprecated and it broke an entire critical workflow. I can't even begin. So, you know, if you're sending an email that's like a company-wide, you know, that's like going out to all your customers, and it's not, it doesn't need to come from a personal person's account, like send that from hello at your company.com's Gmail account. Don't send it from your name. If you're connecting it to a Google Sheet, make sure the Google Sheet is owned and the connection is ran by like a service account, like, you know, automations or Google Sheets at, you know, you know your company's name.com. Just be very careful. Regular show and tells. So one thing we did at Compass that was really cool because a lot of people had access to different tools, and automation stuff, was my whole department would have one rep from each team called like the systems person. And we would get together once a week and just show off cool stuff that everyone was doing. And you'd be so shocked, like how many people just don't know what you're working on and like how much you can be inspired by what they were working on if they had access to these tools. And so we were constantly inspiring each other and pushing each other to build really cool stuff. And sometimes on the national team, we would, you know, say, hey, what you're actually doing there is really cool and would serve everybody. Can we nationalize and standardize that? So sometimes what would start out as like a hockey side project would actually become an entire company-wide thing. Internal certification programs, if you're going to get people on board to use complex tools, like have some version of like, Training and certification, even if the train's external and exists somewhere else, you know, there's plenty of courses on different tools that providers of software is like, you know, have, but also like external places, you know, internal certification programs are awesome. There's also an agency based out of Berlin called 9x and they have, and it's free now, which is awesome. They have a no code operator course that you can take asynchronously completely for free. That's like all the fundamentals of being the operations person at your company. That's like totally tool agnostic couldn't more highly recommend that. And then, you know, make maintenance works visible to stakeholders. If you're doing a lot of work maintaining things and fixing bugs, and there's no way around some of the maintenance work, let people know, show them that work, right? You know, have an upvote board where you can show people like, here's what's being worked on. Here's where you can submit your ideas, but I'm also going to balance out the things that you want with the maintenance that has to happen. So people understand why things might take a little bit longer. It's It's funny, it's like a very much like a Twilight Zone episode where we did all this work to fight getting on a roadmap and now we have our own roadmap. (laughs) It's just kind of what happens. But you have to show that maintenance work or else it doesn't get valued. And then if you need more resources, sell pain, not benefits. If you need more resources for this stuff and your ROI story is a bit hard to tell, or it's really hard to get creative with something, sell the pain of if we don't do this is what's going to happen, right? Pain is a lot more sellable than just I save 20 minutes a day. You know, so earlier when it came to onboarding scores, it's like, we're providing in this one area of onboarding the real estate agency compass. The experience actually sucks, right? Let's just be honest. And, you know, a lot of it's pretty good, but this one area, it's like really janky and it's causing friction X, Y, Z ways. And here's a case study for that, right? And you know what? We looked at that. We examined it. We fixed it, made it better with automations. And so just to give you an example, like that one thing was when someone would score a negative score, right? Or a a not great score one week in, no one would know. It would just like live in a Google sheet somewhere like their survey result, right? So what we did was we said, look, that sinks." But if we use this new feature in End Order, if they choose a certain score that's say one out of five and they say, you know, it's a three or a one or, you know, three, two or a one, we can automatically send that to whoever their manager is via text message, so they can immediately get in and troubleshoot that person what's going on. And like that saved us so many scores later on down the road when we actually you know use their thirty day scores versus their ten day check in. So huge.
1: This is all great, and I appreciate the sort of soup to nuts approach here. In closing, here, if people want to get a hold of you and to reach out, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'm on Twitter, just, you know, Philip Lakin, P-H-I-L-I-P-L-A-K-I-N. Same for LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Either one of those is great. You can also shoot me an email at philip philipatnocodeops.com. I'm happy to jam if you have any questions on like scaling this stuff, you know, no-code automations in general. Always happy to talk with folks.
1: Awesome. Philip Lakin, No Code Ops. Thank you so much for your time and insight today.
0: Cool. Thanks so much, man.
1: Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com/mbo pod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Tonkin community at tonkin.com/community.